How you doing? Good. My mind's racing this morning on a handful of different things. So um, tell you what, let me pray. And then I got some things to share with you. And then we'll dive into the text and go from there. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you for your grace to us through him. Um, Lord, I thank you that you're constant, that uh, you're always faithful, that you're always in control. And um, Lord, even, even this day and this month, this year, you hold all things in your hand and we trust you for that. So I pray this morning uh, as I teach your word, Holy Spirit, would you teach me as well as I teach and uh, guide our hearts and grow us to be uh, people who step out in faith, trusting your goodness and your faithfulness to us. I pray against the enemy. He would uh, love to discourage us and oppose us in so many ways. But ultimately, Lord, your will always prevails because you're faithful and you're good. Show us that from the text this morning, I pray, and encourage each of our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we get going, um, as you know, if you're part of our church family, we are in uh, a series, uh, a few months uh, of a, a journey together that we're calling the 30 for 30 journey. Now, if you're a guest this morning, we're glad you're here. Um, so you'll get clued in. This is a little bit of family stuff here. So if you're like, okay, I don't care about that. That's okay. Come back in a little bit then, okay? So here's, here's what's going on. We're celebrating God's faithfulness to us over the past 30 years. Well, obviously, Bible turned 30 years old last fall. And uh, we've, been, we've been asking ourselves, is there anything we can do uh, to extend the faithfulness and the sacrifice and the generosity of a generation ago for another 30 years, for the next generation? And the reality is there's not much we can do other than be faithful ourselves, right? And uh, trust the Lord to be faithful then to the next generation. But uh, there are some things that we can do to try to make that transition as as great as possible. And uh, one of those areas that we're focusing on in the 30 for 30 journey, there's many others, but this is the main one, is is as it relates to our facility. And we're looking at some updates to our facility. And uh, over this, this journey, we're kind of, we're examining the plans, we're praying about it, we're looking at giving, and I just want to give you an update of where we're at on that timeline and kind of what's coming. Sound good? So, so that way everybody's in the loop, and uh, maybe if you've only started coming in the last few weeks, which there's a few, you'll understand a little bit what's going on. So here's where we're at. In November, on, uh, the, towards the end of November, we actually introduced some of the building plans and the floor plans and some of the renovations that have been worked on for, for close to a year uh, with a group of people from DJ Construction. And then uh, after that, when we hit January, we actually officially launched the 30 for 30 journey. That was kind of a soft launch in November, just talking about it and ex- exploring the plans. But we, we really kind of set our feet to the ground going forward in January, on January 15th. And that was the official launch to it. And then after that, we, we took five weeks and we studied a series called A Generous Life, where we started to say, God, what have you made me a steward over? Uh, how can I be generous like that, with that, like you're generous to me? And how do I grow in my generosity of my time, my talent, and my treasure? And for five weeks, we studied that together, both on Sunday mornings and in our small groups. And in the midst of that, on uh, January 29th, I believe, and then February 19th, I think they show up as purple little dots here, uh, we had prayer meetings where we gathered together simply to pray for our church. The first night, we, uh, we prayed through our mission statement that God would uh, put in us a desire, a realization that we are sent ones to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. And then a couple weeks ago, we, we walked through the whole facility and prayed for the ministries that happened. I, I told you last Sunday, and it carries over to today, that there's been somebody who's prayed for you exactly where you're sitting, walking through this room. I come in periodically throughout the week and do the same. You've been prayed for that the Holy Spirit would work in your heart today. And we're going to continue our focus on prayer as we move forward. But today's March 5th, and today kind of marks the halfway point in this journey. And so that's why I wanted to share with you kind of where we're at, give you a little roadmap and let you know what's coming. Because from here on out, uh, especially as we hit April, things will start to pick up. Yeah, yeah? All right, so here's what's coming. Um, During the month of March, uh, we're going to all of the ministry team leaders in our church, and we're sitting down with them, and we're inviting them to give. It's an invitation. It's not your thumbs on it. It's not nobody's going to see that gift. Um, other than our treasurer, and we're just inviting them. So I'm, I go to Randy and say, Randy, 
I want to tell you about what's going on in our church, and I want to invite you to come with me and join me on the journey and consider how God would have you give. And so we're doing that with all our leaders first, and that's happening this month. So if you hear about somebody getting a visit uh, from somebody in the church to talk about the project, that's what's happening. Now, if, if, if somehow we, we can't visit everybody, so if we don't get to you and you would like somebody to come and sit down and talk with you about the project, would you please tell me? We would love to. It's just we, we had to narrow it down somewhere, so we started with leaders and kind of followed this model actually from First Chronicles. Um, and so those advanced commitments, those groups, those people will give their commitment this month, actually. And then at the end of the month, the last two months, if you're in a 110 group, we're going to come and present the whole thing to you at your 110 group and try to answer questions and gather feedback. And you need to know these are floor plans, right? They're not like hard architectural drawings. There's things that could change and probably will change, and that's okay. But but we just want to explain what's happening and and kind of how you can be a part. And then when we hit April 2nd, um, on April 2nd, actually before that, I should say, next Sunday, March 12th, We're going to start 30 days of prayer. So I really, if you haven't been to any of the prayer gatherings yet, I really invite you to come next Sunday evening starting at 6 p.m. And then you can sign up next Sunday to get text messages every day for 30 days of something to pray about for our church. So some days it might relate to kids' ministry. Some days it might relate to to me. Some days, who knows? But things about our church that we'll be praying about every day together. You'll get a text message at 4.30 in the afternoon. 30, 4.30. I thought that's an easy way to remember what time. You look for a text message at 4.30 and then you can, we'll all pray. Sound good? And then at the end of that, we're going to gather again on Palm Sunday that evening and pray together corporately for about an hour in prayer at the church. Big focus on prayer in this. But when we hit April 2nd, some of you will have taken off for spring break and that's okay. But those of you who are here, it's going to be a fun Sunday. It's going to be a really exciting morning, and you need to come early that day. So uh, if you need to set your clocks again that Sunday so you can be here at 9.30, we're actually going to have brunch together over in the fellowship hall, and uh, all all of our families, everybody. So you're invited to come, and if visitors come, we'll clue in our connections team, and they'll kind of say, hey, you came on a great morning, free breakfast, come join us. And uh, we're going to have brunch together that morning, and we'll worship. And then what we'll do is that morning we'll announce what all of the leaders who are committing now have committed to give, just like David did in Chronicles to all the people. And that'll be exciting. And then we'll actually invite for wide participation in the journey from everyone. And that morning you'll receive, and over the course of that week if you're gone, uh, you'll receive your own commitment card, and we'll talk about that, what that looks like. And it's an invitation to give. It's not a requirement to give. Nobody's, nobody's twisting your arm. And we'll have you put your name on it, not because we want to follow up with you, but because we want to make sure it's a legitimate commitment. You know, if, um, no offense, Megan, but if you write down $100,000, I don't know if we're going we're gonna to believe that one, although that's a lot of faith, and that would be awesome. But, but we, want, we want to be able to make sure that they're reliable commitments. Does that make sense? And then help you to track that, just like we do your regular giving throughout the year. And then what's going to happen is uh, we'll move through the month of April, and on April 30th will be a big day of celebration. Because on that day, all of the commitments will come in, and on that day, we'll give our first fruits offerings. If you want to give an initial first gift, we'd ask you to do that before April 30th, and we're going to celebrate. And then from that point on, we'll see what God has decided to provide, and then we'll dial in the project from there, and then it's off into the future, and Depending on how all that goes depends on anything that we do or don't do or when it starts or when it doesn't start. So we're just, we're testing this to see where is God putting our hearts to give toward it. Does that sound good? Does that make sense? Now, again, if you're a guest, thanks for kind of bearing with us through all of that. And, um, but if you have questions, please ask. And I'm really excited about it. I've, I've heard from a lot of you of some of the ways the Lord's been working in your heart. And it's really exciting to me to see what he's up to. So we're really looking forward to that. But the first thing to keep in mind, uh, April 2nd, brunch at 930. Who likes breakfast? If you don't like breakfast, who likes lunch? Hey, you get both. It'll be awesome. So April 2nd at 930. Well, today we continue a series we started last Sunday called Heroic. And we're looking through uh, the Old Testament books of Ezra and Haggai together over these six weeks. 
And as I mentioned, we're not going to dive in super deep, but we're going to stay at a fairly high level in the story, in the narrative. And, um, but we're going to look at, at heroic faith. I'll give you a little bit of background last Sunday, and I won't give you all of that today, but other than to say, as we start the book of Ezra, God's people uh, have sinned against him, and they've been in exile then. Because of their sin, they chose to sin, they chose to suffer, so they've been brought into exile in Babylon or in modern-day Iraq. And they've been there, uh, some for 70 years, some for about 50 years, um, actually some for for much longer than 70 years, but... um, And what happens is the king, Persia conquers that land, and the king of Persia, now that he's in control of all God's people who are captives, says, you know what, I'm issuing a decree, his name was Cyrus, that all of God's people can go back to their land and rebuild their temple and worship their God in Jerusalem. And it's pretty exciting. And so last week we saw the beginning of them coming back to rebuild their temple. And we really looked at the doctrine of God's providence, that he's always involved in in the happenings of our everyday life, that he cooperates with everything that happens. He's, He's not some distant being who's just sitting back with his hands up in the air, hands off, let it go. No, he's intimately involved in this world and in our lives. That's his providence. Well, this morning we're going to see God's faithfulness at work. Now, here's the deal. When you look at God's attributes, when you look at the theology of who God is, um, you're going to realize that that his attributes tend to kind of blend together. You're going to be like, uh, okay, I see his providence last week, Josh, but that kind of sounds like his sovereignty, and that kind of really kind of sounds like his faithfulness today. And you're going to realize they all kind of just blend together. There isn't these hard and fast lines. Well, that's because when you're looking at God, you're seeing a picture of who he is, and that's That's our best way to describe him theologically and the way that God's word describes him. And just like a precious stone, there's many facets to it, but it's all still the Lord God. It's who he is. And today we're going to look specifically at his faithfulness. And here's what we mean by his faithfulness. A definition here to put on the table is that God will always do what he has said. He will always fulfill what he has promised. How often will he do it? Always. He will always do it. He can be relied upon. He will never prove unfaithful to those who trust what he said. Have you put your trust in the Lord? If you have, you can have great confidence. You don't don't need to have any doubts that he will keep his word, that what he promises in his word will happen. You can have great confidence and great trust in what he said. Numbers 23, verse 19, uh, Moses writes this. He says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And the answer is an obvious, well, duh. No, he'll do it. If he said he'll do it, he's going to do it. Why? Because he's, what's the word? Starts with an F. Faithful. Say it. What's the word? God is faithful. He is faithful. Well, um, as we enter chapter 4 of Ezra, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're entering into a time. uh, We saw last week they came back. They they got the foundations of the temple built. There was great joy. And when we hit Ezra 4, guess what else is coming? Lots of opposition. And all the way from Ezra, and if you follow the whole story all the way through the end of Nehemiah, it's constant, fierce, violent, steadfast, unending opposition to the work of God to the work of his people. And um, whenever God is at work, you can expect opposition, fierce, sustained. And so you you better be ready to deal with it. Listen, is God at work in your life? I believe he's at work in our church. I hope he's at work in your life. And if he is, uh, whether it's in your life or in our church, listen, expect opposition and don't let it catch you off guard. Be ready to deal with it. All right? And so um, often, a lot of times, when we talk about it as the church, the sad part is, as far as the church in general, and when the church is moving forward, the most opposition, sadly, to the church in North America anyway, tends to come from inside the church. It tends to come from within. And that's a really sad commentary on things. People get bent out of shape when it's not their idea or their plan or their tradition or exactly how they think it should go. Um, Think about it. If Satan can divide us from within, there's no reason for him to attack us from without, is there? And and to not be divided means we have unity. 
that we have unity. And unity is incredible. This is setting up where we're going this morning because I think you're going to see unity in God's people in this text. Unity is vitally important in the life of a church. Without, without unity, we're like fish in a barrel. It's bad news. And if we get divided, just forget it. Write it off. We need to be unified. Now, that doesn't mean uniformity, where we all think the same thoughts and talk the same way and we're all... No, no, no. Unity means like we're all... We're centered on the same mission. We're sent to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. Amen? And you can have your passions and your things that you're passionate about that you do. But when it comes to the church, our thing is, that's our unity. We're, we're, we're focused on who Jesus is and on following him and reaching more people with the gospel. And we strive for unity in our church in a number of ways. One ten community groups, they're sermon-based. You ever, you ever wonder why we'd give you a homework every week in your bulletin to do? That's because in our 110 groups, then when they meet either every week or every other week or whenever they meet, uh, we're studying the same thing later in the week that we learn together corporately on Sunday. And we're all kind of learning and growing in the same direction. And then what I learned on Sunday, I don't forget through the week because at least there's less likely chance because I have to review it and think about it again later in the week. And that creates unity when we're studying God's word together. You're going to see that in the text this morning, that God's word brings unity. The teaching and preaching of God's word brings unity. Um, when the people, the men, men we place on the board, we make sure that uh, they're in line with our mission, with our vision. When we talk to them before they come on and before we bring them on, we're like, okay, we're, we're going this direction together, right? Listen, the quickest way to divide a church is, is in its leadership. And if there's division in the leadership, watch out. <laughs> Amen. So we want to be together. Now, that doesn't mean there's different, not differing opinions. There are. But at the end of the day, we're moving the same direction. Uh, I've said sometimes, you know, somebody will bring up, uh, I'll just play in devil's advocate. You know what? The devil doesn't need an advocate, <laughs> especially not on the board. Okay, here's another perspective. Great. But let's move forward together. That's unity. Another way that we do it and we protect it is, uh, for me, even as a preaching pastor, pastor, I have maybe the greatest responsibility to build unity among our church by what I teach and how I say it. And not only how I say it, but how often I say it. Do you ever get tired of hearing me say the same things over and over? Somebody's shaking your heads different directions. That's okay. If, if you get tired of hearing me, this, hearing me say the same things over and over, guess what? That's on purpose. Because the more I say it, the more people hear it, and the more we move the same direction. And if, if you're tired of hearing it, just, just nod your head up. I've heard that one. I got it. I got it. Here we go. Somebody else got it today. And we just keep moving forward. Amen? But here's the, here's the big idea. The reason I say all that, and I could go on and on about it. Unity is huge in the life of a church. And the question for you and I, are you somebody who's contributing to the unity of your church? Maybe you're a guest and you're part of another church and you're just here today. Are, are you contributing to the unity of your church or the disunity of it? Are you um, a critic or an encourager? How are you contributing to the unity of your church? Are you a consumer or a contributor? Are you estranged or engaged? Are you selfish or selfless? Are you uh, stubborn or teachable? Are you prideful or are you humble? It, it takes all of us to move together, to bear with one another. Jesus talks a lot about that, a lot about forgiveness and bearing with one another, and that's unity in the church. You tired of me hearing tired of hearing me saying it yet? Okay, good. I'm gonna keep saying it. That's unity in the church. We need unity together around the mission. Amen. Now, I told you this shows up in the text. Look here with me for a second back at some of last week's text from chapter three, verse one. When the seventh month came, in other words, after seven months after they got back, the children of Israel were in the towns and the people gathered together. How did they gather? As what? As one man in Jerusalem. What, what the author here is saying, what Ezra's trying to tell us is they all gathered together in unity. And what did they gather to do? Do you remember? They built the, they built the altar and they began to worship. They gathered together in unity to worship the Lord. There was great unity among God's people. Great unity. Um, and they had it for a couple of reasons. They were working on a major mission together. They had traveled and done life together. And they were following the Lord together. So here's where we're heading this morning. 
These 50,000 people have returned from exile. They're unified. They've moved back in their own towns into Jerusalem. And with great unity, they're worshiping the Lord together. They're praying. They're working. They've laid the foundations for the new temple. There's a big celebration at the end of chapter 3. And we hit Ezra 4 right now. And uh, if, 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 if Satan can't divide them from within, how's he going to try to come after them from without? And now the attacks and the opposition come. Let's start reading from Ezra chapter 4, because when God's working, expect opposition. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses. Now, um, the adversaries, who were these people? They're, they're non-Jewish people who were already living in the land when they got back. So let's imagine you guys are Israel, okay? And over here, you guys are Babylon. And you guys come in, you, you conquer Judah, and you take everybody, you take, and you take them all back to your land. Why did you do that? Well, because that's how you would break someone's spirit in that day in warfare. You'd take them captive out of their land, out of what they know to be familiar, and break their spirit and bring them into your land. And then somebody you captured from, uh, I don't know, from Syracuse, you'd take them and bring them over and put them in Israel. That make sense? And so these adversaries were people that had been transplanted from another land into the land of Israel... And we're going to read about them here in a moment. But that's who the adversaries are. They were already there. They're non-Jewish people already living in the land. They're referred to as people beyond the river, beyond the Jordan River. But let's keep going. They approached the rubble and the heads of fathers' houses, and they said to them, so these adversaries, they said, Hey, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him Ever since the days of Esardon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. You notice what they do? They approach Zerubbabel. He's the governor of Judah, of the Jewish people, and the heads of the father's houses, so the elders and the leaders. And they tell them, they say, hey, we worship your God just like you do. But in reality, you know what? They didn't worship the God of Israel. They didn't worship the God of the Bible. They worshiped a false God. They were heretics. Do you know what heresy is? Heresy is when I add anything to God's word or take away anything in such a way that it it ceases to be the gospel and truth anymore. So when I add to it something that's not truth, or when I take away something from it that is truth, I'm a heretic. And um, heresy is not an issue of agreeing on closed-fisted things and disagreeing on open-handed theology. Uh, So if if you're a Calvinist, an Arminian is not a heretic. If you're an Arminian, a Calvinist is not a heretic. Those are open-handed things. But um, those who don't believe in the God of the Bible, that's heresy. And heresy is, is, a, is, a, is a huge accusation to make on someone because heretics uh, end up in hell because they don't believe the gospel. So in this case, this group of people are heretics. They don't really worship the God of the Bible. They've added to the truth of God's word and falsified it. Let me show you how they've done that. Let me turn back with you to 2 Kings chapter 17. And this, this passage refers to the time after the exile had happened, the first exile. And so God's people of the northern tribes are taken away and they're put in Assyria and Babylon. And here's what happens. Verse 25, at the beginning of their dwelling there... Now, this is talking about the people who the king of Assyria had taken and transplanted in Israel. At the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. They did not fear the Lord. They worshiped other gods, in other words. And look what God does. Bad. Uh, scary. The Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, they told him, they said, Hey, you know the nations that you carried away and you placed in the cities of Samaria? Or of Israel, in other words, do you, do you not know that the law, they, they do not know the law of the God of that land. Therefore, that God, he has sent lions among them and behold, are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded. He thought about it for a little while and he's like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take one of the priests then of the people who used to live there and I'm going to transplant him back in the land to teach them to obey the law of the Lord. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Are you tracking with me? But look at verse 29. 
See, on the first glance, you go, oh, that's good. They learned to fear the Lord. So these, these, these people who are approaching Ezra, and, or, or excuse me, approaching Zerubbabel and the leaders and say, we worship the same God as you, they, they were taught that by one of the priests. But here's the problem. Look at verse 29 in 2 Kings. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines and the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. So they added to the truth of God's word. They still worshiped their own gods. They didn't truly worship the same God. So in verse 2 of, of Ezra chapter 4, when they approached the rubble and the heads of father's houses and said, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. We've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of, of Esaradon, king of Assyria. He's the one who, who brought the priest there to teach him. The reality is, no, they haven't been. They never repented of their false gods and worshiped the Lord God alone. They weren't worshiping the same God. Um, here, here's what this would be like. This would be like if an imam came to us and said, hey, can, can we use your facility to pray as a mosque, as a congregation of Muslims? We worship the same God. Actually, we don't. Did you know that? You, you hear that thrown around a lot in culture today, but Allah is not the same God as the God of the Bible. He's absolutely not. Um, in fact, the God of the Bible's name is Yahweh, and he's a jealous God who declares that he alone is God. And he exists in three persons eternally, the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Well, then who's Allah, maybe you ask? Well, Paul says to the Corinthians that those who pray and sacrifice to gods other than Jesus are actually sacrificing to and worshiping demons. So I'll let you, with the text of the Bible there, you decide who Allah is. It's not the God of the Bible. Now, what's curious is this exact thing actually happened to a friend of mine who's a church pastor, who's a pastor of a church in Naperville. Uh, the Muslim religion is growing by leaps and bounds around the Chicago area. And uh, a guy came in and it's like, hey, and we worship the same God. Can we pray here? And so they talked with him and they, they shared the gospel with him. And uh, that conversation went on a few different times. They met together and... Um, Long story short, another facility opened up for them all to meet to pray, and so they never really heard from him again. But they had the opportunity to teach the gospel, and he seemed interested. So maybe you can pray for that man. I don't know his name, but that he might come to know the truth of the gospel and worship the God of the Bible. But that's kind of what's happening. It's, it's a totally different group of people saying, we worship the same God, and the truth is they don't. Look at verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, or your translation might say Joshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, uh, No, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Notice all the leaders present a unified answer. And they reject the offer to help because it wasn't really an offer to help. You're going to find out here in a second that it actually, uh, they wanted to help so that they could get in and frustrate the plans. And that, that tends to be, someone's character is often revealed after conflict. Look what happens in verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. So now uh, they're discouraging. Opposition is coming up. The people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. And their real motivations reveal, revealed and opposition to God's work begins. And what I want to spend a lot of time with this morning is this idea of, of when God is working, expect opposition. And I want to look with you at five types of opposition that I see in the text here and that I think we face. Now, when we're, we're talking about this, it's not just opposition to our church as a whole. But is the Lord working in your life? Because then you can expect similar types of opposition in your life as the Lord works. I believe that. You see it carried out multiple times in the Bible. So, so let's look at some of these forms of opposition. Here's the first one. Uh, notice uh, the, the people of the land, they discouraged the people of Judah. They made them afraid to build. They bribed counselors against them. The first type of opposition is threats or intimidation. They discouraged them verbally, financially, legally. Threats were thrown out. Hey, stop building or else. If you don't stop this work... Um, it's going to be bad news. We're going to the king. We're, we're going to tell him about it. And it got so bad that they actually, it says in verse 5, they bribed counselors 
to frustrate the work. Uh, that, that word counselors can mean uh, agents or activists or protesters or propagandists. In other words, they've paid professional protesters to come in and, and, and frustrate their plans. That's exactly what's happening in the text. Those bribed counselors, that's exactly who they are. They've been paid to go protest the work of God. They spread false information against God's people to frustrate them at every turn, to slow it down however they can. Note too, at the end of verse 5, this lasted all the days of Cyrus, even until the reign of Darius, to the next to another king. So when God is working, expect opposition. Expect it. Expect sometimes it comes in the form of threats or of intimidation. Or sometimes in the form of people's anger toward you. I can't believe you did that. Okay, before you respond in anger, just listen, be quiet, and, and maybe that's just some opposition to you following the Lord. Trust him. But this opposition, it kept going. It was sustained. The threats, the intimidation, the false information, the, op- the accusation, it kept going for years on end. And this, this kind of brings me to a second uh, opposition I see here, which is discouragement and exhaustion. This kept going for years. We're going to find out here in a moment that the work on the temple, because of this opposition, actually stops. And it stops for 16 years. Nothing happens. The people finally, they just, they had enough of it. They got discouraged. They had no courage to move forward any longer. They had been striving and working and working and they were exhausted. Do you ever find yourself in that spot? Maybe the Lord's been working in your life, working in your heart, working in your family. And you keep moving forward and you keep trying to take a step and trying to take a step. And every time you're met with opposition and the critics are coming out or, or situations, whatever it is, and, and it's always opposition. You never seem to make ground. It gets discouraging, doesn't it? It's exhausting. And that discouragement and exhaustion itself becomes an opposing force to you following the Lord. Let's keep reading and see how else opposition surfaced to God's work. Chapter 4, verse 6. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation. Here comes more, more, intimida- more intimidation. They wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, those two are, uh, I believe, the same, same guy, Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithradeth and Tabeel and the rest of their associates, they, they wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic and translated. And Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king. And here's how it goes. So here comes, here's this letter of, of opposition. Verses 9 and 10 reveal that it's not just a few people writing it, but a whole ton of people. Let's look at, skip to verse 11. And uh, Ezra tells us this is a copy of the letter they sent. They wrote to Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, we send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you, that, that, that were let to come back to the land after being captive, um, they, they've gone to Jerusalem. Let it be known to you, they're rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're finishing the walls and preparing or repairing the foundations. They said, listen, they're, they're rebuilding a wicked and rebellious city. And guess what? That was absolutely true because Jerusalem had been a very rebellious and very wicked city. That's why they were taken into exile. They had rebelled against the Lord. They had always constantly turned uh, their face from him and shook their fist at him. And that's why God uh, brought in the foreign lands to conquer them. Jerusalem was a wicked city. It was rebellious in big ways before they were exiled. This is all true. But you know what? here's, Here's what I see here in terms of opposition. The third form of opposition that shows up right here is is accusation and rehashing the past. Do you know how Satan loves to discourage you? Do you know how he loves to discourage you? He brings up your past. He brings up your past failures. You start having some success in life and moving forward, and then all of a sudden the enemy's whispering in your ear, yeah, but it's not going to last because I remember what you did. And you remember it too. You screwed up. You messed it all up. 
You're never going to get it right. Yeah, you might for a while, but I know who you are. I saw it back there. That's who you are. And he accuses us. In fact, in Revelation, uh, John tells us that Satan is continually, constantly accusing us before the throne of God. Saying, how can you forgive them? Don't you see what they do? Don't you see how sinful they are? And this accusation is constant. And this rehashing of the past is constant. And it's effective when he does it. You know why? Because everything usually that he brings up in those ways is true. Yeah, I did screw up. I did mess that up. I didn't get it right. But there's a greater truth. It's only a half truth. See, his accusation is only a half-truth. Yeah, Jerusalem was a rebellious and wicked city, but God's been working in their life and he's redeeming them and he's changed their hearts and they're coming back and now they're new and we're starting over, starting fresh. Listen, that's the gospel, loved ones. I don't know what's happened in your life, what you've done, what's been done to you, but it's in the past. And when you trust Jesus Christ... 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that, uh, behold, the old has passed away. You are a new creation. You are new. And God no longer sees your failures. He sees you in Jesus Christ. Yeah, you still sin, but you're a saint who sins. You're not a sinner. Your identity has changed. And, And you know how you respond to accusation biblically? Here's how I believe you respond to it. You go, you know what? I remember that. Yeah, you're right. You know what? That's true. But... I've repented of that. I've been forgiven and it is forgotten. And it's done. Amen? That's how you reply to accusation and rehashing the past. It's only a half truth, but it's a way of opposition that Satan brings up over and over. It's probably his biggest tool. Look at verse 13. Let's keep reading in their letter. They say, now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they won't pay tribute, customer toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. See, more accusation, this time towards the future. Now, because we eat eat the salt of the palace, and is it not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor? Um, it, it, It is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of records of your fathers. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find in the book of records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up from it and it stirred up in it from of old. That's why this city was laid waste. All of that's true. We, we, we make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, then you, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. So we see more accusation in all of that, but we also see another type of opposition, I believe, a fourth type to God's work that we can expect. And it's called negativity. Negativity. This constant drumbeat of negative thinking. It's never going to happen. They're just going to go right back to what they did before. It's going to be awful. It's never going to work. It's not enough. There's not enough money. They're never going to change. You know what another word for negativity is? Criticism. Criticism. Uh, Later this month, I'll have been a pastor here for 14 years. And you know what drives me crazy more than anything else, more and more over time, is critical people. I just have less and less time for it. Because all it does is just, it just, it puts this cloud over things of negativity and stinking thinking. And it's just like, I'm exhausted. Let's move forward together. That's in the past. Let's forget it. Right? Negativity is a type of opposition. Critical people, I don't like their theology. I don't like their clothes. And it's just this constant drip, drip, drip. And by the way, you should be warned, a a persistent, negative, critical attitude is exactly what left all of God's people, the Israelites, generations before wandering in the wilderness until their death for 40 years. So how do you get rid of criticism? Well, you you replace it. um, You replace it with love and with forgiveness. And this this opposition, negativity and criticism, when it comes to the church, um, it's almost always from within. It almost always rises from within, that type of opposition. In, in our individual lives, 
I don't know about you, but I tend to, to think negatively about myself, which is the same as if somebody was standing here accusing me, a child of God. That's, that's not healthy. But that too rises from within, doesn't it? But in this case, the opposition of negativity comes from those people without. They're negative about the future. Right, look at verse 17. The king sent an answer then. He said to Rahim the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river greeting. And now the letter you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree and search has been made and it's been found this city of old has risen against kings and rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city not be rebuilt until the decree is made by me. Kind of puts a hold on all the work and take care not to be slack in this manner. Why should damage grow to hurt the king, to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahim and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Here's a fifth form of opposition I see. It's this decree to stop work, and it's really what it is. In our lives, it's events outside of our control. Events outside of our control cause great opposition. Often when you find God is working, opposition arises that's totally outside of your control. Sometimes it's circumstantial. and Sometimes, I believe, though, it's a direct assault of the enemy. Sometimes it's sickness. Well, that one's just circumstantial, right? Go read the book of Job. I don't know that it is always circumstantial. I think sometimes it is the assault of the enemy. Family stress, relational stress, being misunderstood. Decision from higher authorities. Setbacks of various kinds. This is just the catch-all. I think fear comes into this one as well. Maybe this is the sixth one, is fear, that, that I find myself fear, fearful and paralyzed and unable to move forward. But in any case, look at the result of all this opposition in verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that's in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of King Darius, of Darius, king of Persia. So the work stopped. Looks like the opposition won and succeeded. Clearly, they must have been doing something wrong, hence the opposition, right? No. Sometimes opposition can mean you're doing exactly what God wants you to be doing. And when God is working, expect opposition. But And we'll move through these last two points quickly. But when God is working, he overcomes all opposition. When God is doing the work, yeah, you can expect opposition, but don't fear Because he overcomes all opposition. Because it's his work. He's the one who's faithful. First Thessalonians. He will surely do it, Paul writes. God overcomes all opposition. So what do we do? We, We persevere. We keep going. We don't stop. In the face of opposition, don't give up. Lean firmer into the Lord Jesus and trust him. He's faithful. Trust his faithfulness. Trust what he wrote to be in his word to be true. He overcomes all opposition to his work. Let's keep reading. Look at chapter 5 of Ezra. We're 16 years later now. And now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, prophesied to the Jews who are in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the, Lord, name of the God of Israel who is over them. 16 years have passed. And uh, Haggai and Zechariah start preaching. That when it says prophesying, really, there, if you go read Haggai and Zechariah, you'll find out that most of the books are not foretelling the future, but they're forthtelling, thus saith the Lord. Uh, Haggai and Zechariah get up, and they do what I'm doing right now. They just start preaching the truth of God's word. They just start preaching. And you know what? This, this is the number one way God overcomes opposition, is through his living word. Through his living word. That's the number, way, well, number one way he overcomes opposition. Um, did you see what happened? Haggai and Zechariah preached the word. They prophesy. Then in verse 2, Zerubbabel, then Zerubbabel, so the governor, and Joshua, the priest, they arose. After God's word was taught again, they got great courage from it. It's almost like you ever come to church on a Sunday morning and it's been a hard week and you hear God's word taught and then you leave and it's like, I just got, I got a new perspective on life for the week. Listen, that isn't anything that I had to say. That's God's word 
being taught and God's word changing you. It's the power of his living word. And their preaching of the word of God is what God used to overcome the opposition to his work because it overcame fear and wrong attitudes. It replaced it with truth. It it confronted sin, if you go read Haggai and Zechariah, that needed to be repented of and then encouraged those people to follow the Lord. It gave confidence to them in in the face of threats and intimidation and accusation. It lifted and restored their hearts in the midst of discouragement and exhaustion. And then encourage them to trust God who is fully in control and fully faithful and is going to do what he said he would do. Are you facing opposition in your life? If you're growing, you probably are. Get your nose in his book. That's how you'll overcome it. To hear a word from the Lord. Hear from him in his word. So long story short, here's what happens. Uh, the governor of that province, Tatanai, um, uh, he, he uh, let me back up. Zerubbabel and Joshua get fired up after hearing God's word taught. It's 16 years later and they're like, dude, what are we doing sitting around? We got we to gotta move forward. Enough of this, enough of this. If God is really God, he can really provide. He's really faithful. He's really going to keep his promise. Let's do this, right? They get fired up and they start rebuilding. And they bring in uh, they bring in timbers from from Lebanon and cedar and, and all kinds of stuff, and they just start building. They're like, you know what? We're not stopping. We're just going. Here we go. No stopping now. And then the governor goes, um, "Hey, uh, this is 16 years later, so different governor probably." That night he goes, um, what, are, "What are you guys doing? There was a decree to stop the work on this, wasn't it?" And then Zerubbabel pipes up, Joshua pipes up, and they're like, um, "There was, but there was a decree before that by a guy named Cyrus who sent us here." To do the work. And even before Cyrus, there was the decree from God Almighty saying, rebuild the temple. And so we're following those commands. That and I was like, oh, okay, I've never heard of that. So he, he sends a letter back to Persia, to, to Darius the king, and, and they search the treasury, they, they search the archives. And in the meantime, the work keeps going, it doesn't stop. And, and he searches and he finds the decree from Cyrus. And you can read it there in your text. And that Cyrus sent him back. And not only did he send him back to build it, he gave him all the wealth. And so Darius writes back and he's like, listen, let them keep working. And let, them, let the work on the house of the Lord, I think in chapter 6, uh, be left alone. Leave them alone. In fact, you know what you should do? Here's what I'm commanding you to do. I'm commanding you to finance their building. Give them more money to make sure it happens. Whatever they need, give it to them. Honor them in the work and let it be done. Isn't that incredible? God overcomes all this opposition. And, and because of that, they persevered. And listen, loved ones, whatever the opposition is you're facing, whether it's internal, external, um, it, it could be all kinds of different things in your life. Um, know that if God is working in and through you, he's going to help you overcome that opposition. In fact, he's the one who will do it. So you should persevere. And when you persevere, Jesus gets great glory and you get great joy. Jesus gets great glory, and you get great joy. By the way, uh, after Darius, I think this is kind of, this is, he means business, man, because if you look at uh, verse 11 of chapter, chapter 6 in his decree, he goes, I also make a decree, if anyone alters this edict, in other words, if you don't help him rebuild the temple, a beam will be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and then his house shall be made a dunghill. He means business. But when God's working, expect opposition. But when he's working, he overcomes all opposition. So persevere. And Jesus gets great glory and you get great joy. Let me show you in the text. Look at verse 13. So then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bazanai and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. Verse 14. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai. And the prophet Zechariah, so they they prospered because of biblical teaching. And then they finished their building by the decree of God. Notice that's who's listed first. It was God's decree. He's faithful. And, And of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month in Adar, in the sixth month of the reign of Darius the king. And the peoples, verse 16, so they finished the temple. The priests, the Levites, the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with what? What's it say? With joy. With joy. What if they had given up? 
What if they hadn't persevered? Now listen, persevering doesn't mean you're going to like it the whole time. (laughs) Persevering is hard. Quite frankly, it stinks most of the time. But in the end, there's joy. There wouldn't have been joy if they had failed to respond to the teaching and proclamation of God's word. If they hadn't participated with what God was up to, there would have been no joy. Verse 22, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord God had made them joyful. Loved ones, I don't know what you're facing, but know that God overcomes opposition to his work. And if you would persevere, Jesus gets great glory and you get great joy. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus and thanks for your grace to us through him. And um, Lord, thanks for the example of uh, your people in Ezra and uh, how uh, really we can relate to him in a lot of ways because when things got hard, um, they quit, they failed. Uh, But at the same time, you didn't give up. You were still faithful when they were unfaithful. You still kept your word. You still moved the ball forward. And in the end, as they persevered and trusted you, you gave them great joy. I pray that for each of us in our lives, Lord. Um, Jesus, I don't know everything going on in everyone's life, but you do. Uh, You can uh, redeem and rescue the situation. You can help us to persevere and make it through. Uh, Would you help us to do that? that Jesus would get glory and that we would have joy. Father, we love you. I thank you for Jesus. And we pray all of this through him.